Let's stand together, brothers and sisters, for the reading of God's Word. We'll continue forward in the book of Acts. We're looking at chapter 16 now, uh, verses 1 through 5, as we see Paul and Silas uh, beginning the second missionary journey. I'll read from Acts chapter 15, verse 36, through to chapter 16, verse 10. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas and Mark sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there, named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not per- permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision... Immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So let's consider some words written by Paul about seven years after the events of today's text. Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, most likely writing from Ephesus with Timothy, around AD 56, about seven years after the time of today's text. And here's what Paul says about he and Timothy describing their inner motives. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. It's from Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. We know from verse 1 of chapter 1 that this letter is from both Paul and Timothy to the church at Corinth. So what is it that motivates Paul and Timothy? What is it when we look at the choices that Paul and Timothy make in today's text? Why did they do what they did? Well, if we can safely assume that the motive was the same seven years earlier, 
then we can say it's the love of Christ. The love of Christ. Now this is both the love, the Lord's love for them that they have received, but also their response of love toward Him. It's all encompassed in that phrase. So what is happening is that this love is compelling them, it is controlling them, and it is restraining them in everything they do. Specifically, as they consider Christ's love, they're specifically considering Christ's death upon the cross and His suffering and anguish that He went through for them grips them as they consider His proven love toward them and as they, of course, know of their own undeserving state before God. Brothers and sisters, this has totally transformed their controlling inner motives. Now, what was the prior motive? What is that great beast within us? They are no longer living selfishly, focused upon themselves, not living for themselves. They are living for Christ, who died for them and rose again from the dead. This is why they live. This is why they do what they do. And as we look at Paul and Timothy in today's text and consider the sacrifices, the hardships, the serious pain and risks that are set before us today, I hope you will ask yourself, what motivates you? What is the controlling force in your own life? Is it for yourself? Are you a selfish person who thinks primarily for yourself? Or can we look and say that we are like Paul or like Timothy who are motivated out of love for Christ. Christ who died for you. It's a good question for all of us to ask ourselves. Little people, big people, young people, old people, and everything in between. Because this is life's most important question. Are you living for yourself or are you living for Christ? They were under the sweetest and strongest constraints to do what they did. Love has a constraining virtue to excite ministers and private Christians in their duty, commentary tells us. Our love to Christ will have this virtue and Christ's love to us, which was manifested in this great instance of his dying for us, will have this effect upon us if it be duly considered and rightly judged of. All other motives will fail us in our lives. Nothing else will help see us through anything that we go through other than love for Christ. Let us lay aside all other motives by God's grace and be gripped by love for Christ like Paul and Timothy were. So with that introduction, the sermon is titled Controlled by the Love of Christ. First we'll see that he strengthened the churches from Tarsus to Derby. We'll go back one verse at the end of chapter 15 and consider that. Consider Paul's sacrifice and what he went through. And then we'll see that Paul returns to Derby and Lystra and we'll think about what that means for him. Then we'll look at Timothy, a certain disciple, and see, learn some things about him and see also his love for Christ on display.
we'll see that Paul wants Timothy to go with him, further displaying his love for Christ and desire to make disciples. Circumcising Timothy because of the Jews, again, demonstrates a love for Christ and a prioritization of the gospel over personal rights. And then he will deliver the Jerusalem Council decree to the churches that further strengthens them in the faith and confirms for them God's love for them. And then we'll see the fruit, just like it started, strengthened and rapidly growing churches. And then a few questions for us by God's grace to examine ourselves and see if we too could grow up in these ways. So first of all, chapter 15, verse 41, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So before crossing the Taurus Mountains into the region of southern Galatia, so this time he's moving uh, towards the west, whereas the first missionary journey, they came from the east. So he's traveling in the opposite direction. He's got to go over the Taurus Mountains in order to get there. There's another mountain range right outside of Antioch that he has to go over as well. There's two different mountain ranges. And as they're traveling, they're visiting the churches in this region. Now, it's, it's apparent to us that nothing is spoken about Tarsus. There's no mention of his hometown. This is the place where his family is from. Now, a lot of his upbringing was in Jerusalem. But no mention is made of Paul visiting Tarsus. Now, it could have been one of the cities that they visited. But it's not even mentioned. So this brings up the idea of sacrifice for Paul. Did Paul have family and friends in Tarsus? What were his connections with his parents or his siblings or his cousins or his dear friends at this time? What about his possessions? Did he have lands or a home or inheritance that he was laying aside for the sake of Christ? What childhood plans and dreams dwelt in Tarsus as Paul passed by with his eyes set upon the journey through the mountains, as he ascended the Taurus Mountains towards the Cilician Gates with Tarsus in his rearview mirror, what was in his heart? What kind of ties were being left behind? What Tarsus comforts and pleasures may have called to Paul as he instead kept his hand to the plow and did not look back? I think we should also take note of Paul's urge to help establish fledgling churches, churches that were in existence already. He could have begun a new work in new towns, but instead Paul goes to the juvenile churches that are needing strengthening. They're newborn, and they need to be nourished and strengthened and helped. And we know that they've been through great shaking, both through the persecution of the unbelieving Jews and the heresies of the believing Jews about this strengthening of new believers and new churches. Commentary says, observe, ministers are well employed and ought to think themselves so and be satisfied when they are made use of confirming those that believe as well as in converting those that believe not. It's worth taking note of in today's world where often in Christianity there is an unbalanced focus focus upon concept of evangelism rather than discipleship and it is a good thing for us to strengthen one another in the Lord 
And it is a good use of our time. So what do we see next? Paul returns to Derby and Lystra. This is very significant. I want us to closely reflect upon Paul's first visit to this region and ask yourself if you would have had enough love for Christ to go through this again. Potentially go through this again. He had been persecuted and expelled from Pisidian Antioch, treated shamefully. He had then escaped death threats at Iconium, violent, unbelieving Jews, and enduring being worshipped as a god at Lystra, the brokenness and the, the lies and the deception of this lost culture stands before him. And he had been stoned and left for dead outside of Lystra. The bloodthirsty Jews from Antioch had traveled about a hundred miles and stirred up the multitudes in Lystra to kill him. And there's no reason to think that these same bloodthirsty individuals are not still out for his neck. But what is Paul's focus? Is it the danger to his own life? It doesn't appear that way. Is it to get revenge? It doesn't appear that way either. No, see, Paul's motive is the love of Christ, the name of Christ. He desires to strengthen Christ's bride in that region. That's what he's after. No matter what obstacles he may face, he's going to keep his hand to the plow and he's going to stay on the plow line that Jesus gave him, regardless of what he has faced. Self-love is being thoroughly conquered in Paul's life. Is self-love being conquered in your life, in our life? It is surely one of our greatest, if not our greatest foe in this life, is our own selfishness and commitment to our own comforts and our own pleasures and our own kingdom and our own ways and our own name and our own lives. May we learn from Paul and Timothy brothers and sisters. Commentary says, in the last of these places he had been stoned, and yet he goes there again. None of these things moved Paul from the preaching of the gospel, from the care of the churches, such zeal, such courage and intrepidity was he possessed of. Is this you? Note the risk. What risks are you willing to endure for the love of Christ? To be a part of of making disciples in the earth, to be a part of expressing the kingdom of God in the earth, what risks are you willing to face? Commentary says, we should not make ourselves but Christ the end of our living and actions. And it was one end of Christ's death to cure us of this self-love and to excite us always to act under the commanding influence of His love. A Christian's life should be consecrated to Christ and then do we live as we ought to live when we live to Christ who died for us. We are eaten up with selfishness. We make all kinds of excuses to focus on things other than Christ. To focus on ourselves and our own pleasures and our own glory rather than enjoying Him and His glory. May God bless us to grow up in love for Christ. Next, we see Timothy, a certain disciple, presented to us for the first time. 
in the end of verse 1 and in verse 2. The text says, And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Behold, Timothy. His name means honoring God. Behold, here is an emphasis on this discovery. Paul's searching for a disciple. A disciple is a learner, a pupil of Christ in his way, one who's willing to be a pupil and a disciple of Paul, who's following Christ. Timothy is a Christian. Surely he would have been baptized by this point, given that the brethren of the region held him in high regard. Looking at multiple clues throughout the book of Acts and the New Testament, it is likely that Timothy is roughly 20 years old at this time, give or take a few years in either direction. Perhaps Timothy, we talked about this before, perhaps Timothy had seen or heard of Paul's preaching and suffering during the first missionary journey. And this is likely given Paul's reference to the first missionary journey in the book of 2 Timothy. And perhaps this is the time during that first journey when Timothy became a believer in Jesus as the Messiah. Perhaps Paul's ministry that first time through and his suffering that Timothy saw was a part of what brought Timothy to faith at that time. Writing in about AD 65, one of the last books that he wrote about 16 years after the events of today's text, Paul says to Timothy, and he's writing to Timothy likely at Ephesus, uh, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So Timothy has seen this and experienced this, and later Paul will remind him of it. We're told also that he's not only a believer in Christ, but that he's been raised in a believing home with a believing mother. He's the son of a Jewish woman. And she had also become a believer in Christ, we're told in this text. And also his mother, his grandmother was a genuine believer also. Second Timothy, again, Paul says, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. In this story regarding Timothy, there are some things to note. One of them is that the power of a believing mother can overcome the influence of an unbelieving father through genuine faith and living. And this should be of great encouragement to any of us as we consider all whom we know the power of one believing soul in a family. 
text tells us his father was Greek. And so this would have been a difficulty for him growing up and yet would have made him particularly well-suited for the ministry that he would be carrying out amongst Jews and Gentiles. So because his father was a Greek, he had not been circumcised. Even though he was raised in a covenant home, he had not received the Old Testament sign of the covenant because of his father. So Timothy, he had missed out on the blessings and the nurturance of the feasts and the temple rituals that were his by virtue of having a believing mother. He had never been allowed to eat a Passover meal, even though the blood of the lamb covered their home. Please note, for all whose father is not a believer or whose father is absent, the Lord God can bring a spiritual father into your life to fill that void. Further, for those who do have Christian fathers, oh, give thanks to God and seek for your relationship to be a great blessing in Christ to both of you. For those who have believing fathers, believing mothers, do not take this for granted. Rejoice in this. For those who do not have believing parents or you know, only one believing parent, see the Lord's hand of grace to overcome these things. And see especially the way God provides for Timothy a spiritual father. And Paul thinks of him as a true son, as we just read. Next about Timothy, he is well spoken of by the brethren at Iconium and Lystra. So in some way, Timothy had been involved in in this community, not just in one city. And the church in the region knew of him. So he probably lived in Lystra at this time and also spent time with the brethren in Iconium and Derby as well. And so his life had demonstrated the genuineness of his faith in Christ somehow to the people who were there. Some suggest that perhaps Paul knew Timothy before this, knew him through his first time through, or perhaps even knew him growing up, uh, being there in the same region, uh, you know, separated by these mountains. Uh, But there was a a nice uh, mountain pass there, the Cilician Gates. So the travel was not super hard in the right time of the year. They may have known each other. Especially as you consider the travels back and forth to the temple and things of that nature. So what happens with Timothy in the future? Over time, Timothy will become the pastor at Ephesus. And he will serve as perhaps Paul's most trusted fellow laborer as he continues to go through the discipleship process that Paul takes him through. And he will be listed, Timothy, as co-author with Paul on six of the epistles, more than anyone else. Silas was only mentioned twice, and then Barnabas not a single time. So Paul sees something very special in Timothy. And he wants Timothy to come along with him. Perhaps he sees his... Uh, lacking someone to discipleship, to, to disciple him, the hunger that he has to grow in Christ, the special features in his life that make him especially talented and prepared for the ministry. Also consider that Paul has just recently lost John Mark as a disciple, a young man of similar age. Today's text shows that Paul was on the lookout for a young man that he could take under his wing and train up in the ways of the Lord as a gospel minister and church planter. 
This is a critical principle for the uh, future of God's church in every generation. The commentary says that Paul would have him to go forth with him, to accompany him, to give attendance on him, to receive instruction from him, and to join with him in the work of the gospel, to preach for him when there was occasion, and to be left behind in places where he had planted churches. Paul had a great love for him, not only because he was an ingenious young man and one of great parts, but because he was a serious young man and one of devout affections. For Paul was always mindful of his tears. And we see that in 2 Timothy. Perhaps Timothy could have been called a leaky pastor. Paul gives instruction for Timothy to also be on the lookout for other faithful men with good doctrine who can teach others. So again, we see this principle Paul transfers to Timothy. And it needs to be a part of our thinking and our lives as well. If we are to be mature Christians participating in the multiplication of God's church in the earth, if we are to be those who see the church growing in number daily, who see the church being strengthened daily. 2 Timothy 2.1 says, writing to Timothy very late in his life, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Critical injunction. Commentary says he must instruct others and train them up for the ministry and so commit to them the things which he had heard. He must also ordain them to the ministry, lodge the gospel as a trust in their hands, and so commit to them the things which he had heard. Two things he must have an eye to in ordaining ministers. Their fidelity or integrity, commit them to faithful men who will sincerely aim at the glory of God, the honor of Christ, the welfare of souls, in the advancement of the kingdom of the Redeemer among men, and also their ministerial ability. They must not only be knowing themselves, but be able to teach others also, and be apt to teach. None of us, each one of us, should dread the possibility of going into the grave and not have handed off the baton to someone in the next generation. Have you made disciples? Has the love of Christ compelled you to make disciples in your home, with your children, outside of your home, siblings with one another? Are you a faithful believer who understands God's Word and teaches others so that they can go out and do the same? This multiplication is a critical kingdom principle. When the seed grows up and bears fruit, the fruit always has other seeds that can grow up and bear fruit that has other seeds. And on and on and on. So may this encourage us to consider our lives, our love for Christ, and our approach to every single relationship that we have in this world. Also, let us take a moment to consider Timothy's sacrifice of leaving his home, leaving his family, leaving his friends, leaving his unbelieving father behind. What dreams of comfort and inheritance might he have had? What relationships did he need to say goodbye to? The bonds of love he surely had with his mother and his grandmother if they were both living. 
those bonds would ache as he too with Paul ascended the Taurus Mountains and left, as he too with Paul continued westward away from his hometown, knowing that what was before him was suffering and persecution for the name of Christ. Consider Timothy's sacrifice and ask yourself, what could have prompted a young man to make this choice? We don't know on the front end, do we? But as time goes on and he persists in service and love to Christ and to Christ's kingdom, we know what motivates him, don't we? The love of Christ. Timothy, like Paul, has been gripped by the love of Christ. Timothy, like Paul, has been brought to the conviction of his own sins in his own soul. Timothy, like Paul, has been brought to the consideration of the great judgment that would come in his life. Timothy, like Paul, has, been come, to see, has come to see that the Messiah is Jesus and that He suffered upon the cross for His sins. And He's come to love Him. He's come to be filled with gratitude to Him. He's come to understand that life's purpose rests in Christ and His kingdom. May this be true of each of us, brothers and sisters. So we see more examples next of love for Christ in Paul's life and in Timothy's life. Imagine how difficult it would have been the risk for Paul to even suggest to Timothy that he should be circumcised. He might miss out on having this young disciple. Why not just leave that aside? Think of Timothy and what he goes through. The text says he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all knew that his father was Greek. Now this should be, for those of you who have been kind of tracking with the storyline, this should be a surprising event given that Paul holds in his hand the written decree of the Jerusalem Council clearly abrogating, clearly doing away with the ceremonial law. And he's just fought so vehemently against imposing the ceremonial law upon the Gentiles himself, and he knows that they've received the book of Galatians from his hand. But see, here's what we learn. Jews are still free to live out the ceremonial law if it is deemed profitable for the gospel of Christ. And we'll see later, Paul takes a vow. He enters into this same kind of behavior for the sake of his countrymen, the Jews. Paul circumcises Timothy, brothers and sisters, in order to avoid the distracting controversy this would have generated amongst the unbelieving Jews. The letter from the Jerusalem Council, we'll see in the next scripture, would halt the controversy amongst the Jews who were believing Jews. But he wanted to take away every unnecessary hurdle of the gospel for the unbelieving Jews. And he knew that Timothy would have an important ministry throughout his life to unbelieving Jews. And that being circumcised would completely remove that distraction that unbelieving Jews would have about Timothy. Believing that he should be circumcised. Commentary says that Paul took him and circumcised him or ordered it to be done. This was strange. Had not Paul opposed those with all his might that were imposing circumcision upon the Gentile converts? 
Had he not at this time the decrees of the council at Jerusalem with him, which witnessed against it? He had, and yet circumcised Timothy, not as those teachers designed in imposing circumcision to oblige him to keep the ceremonial law, but only to render his conversation and ministry passable. And if it might be acceptable among the Jews that abounded in those quarters. He knew Timothy was a man likely to do a great deal of good among them, being admirably qualified for the ministry if they were not invincibly prejudiced against him. And therefore, that they might not shun him as one unclean because uncircumcised, he took him and circumcised him. Thus, to the Jews, he became a Jew that he might gain the Jews. And all things to all men that he might gain some. He was against those who made circumcision necessary to salvation, but used it himself when it was conducive to edification. Nor was he rigid in opposing it as they were in imposing it. Thus, though he went not in this instance according to the letter of the decree, he went according to the spirit of it, which was a spirit of tenderness toward the Jews and willingness to bring them off gradually from their prejudices. Paul made no difficulty of taking Timothy to be his companion, though he was uncircumcised. But the Jews would not hear him if he were, and therefore Paul will humor them herein. It is probable that it was at this time that Paul laid his hands on Timothy for the conferring of the gift of the Holy Ghost upon him, which you've already read about in 2 Timothy chapter 1. We can consider more of the humility and the sacrifice and the love of Christ seen in this young man's life. Brothers and sisters, adult male circumcision is not just an idea. It is a very real event that I'm sure uh, Timothy had a hard time forgetting for the remainder of his life. It is very painful, extremely painful for about three days. And then it can take up to six weeks before the pain stops. There's no indication that they waited there for him to heal up. Maybe they did. And plus, think of it, for a grown man, this would have been a very humbling procedure to endure. The love of Christ compelled Timothy and Paul. What are you willing to go through in order to remove unnecessary hindrances for the gospel? What kind of pain and sacrifice would you consider reasonable in order to remove a stumbling block, an unnecessary stumbling block for someone else with the gospel, in so much as the law of God allows for it? Have you thought about these things? Look at what these two men have put themselves through for the sake of removing as many boundaries, as many barriers as they can for the gospel of Christ. So what happens next? Well, he's got the decree in his pocket and he delivers it to the, ter- to the churches. So Timothy's been circumcised. That issue is probably being discussed and now confirming what he taught when he sent them the book of Galatians. He brings them the ruling of the apostles and elders at Jerusalem to show them that he was correct. He was not premature in sending them that letter. He was acting according to his 
God-given authority as apostle of Jesus Christ. See, they had come against him in that regard. So that letter, now shored up by the Jerusalem decree, would end all doubt that was brought in by those who had attempted to undermine Paul's authority and Paul's teaching. And what does it do? It shores up the souls of the believers. Those that maybe had not given way, but were wavering inside, still unsure, brought to some confusion, tossed about a bit by the idea. Commentary says that they delivered them copies of the decrees of the Jerusalem Synod to be a direction to them in the government of themselves and that they might have wherewith to answer the Judaizing teachers and to justify themselves in adhering to the liberty with which Christ had made them free. Remember, the Gentiles are, no long, are not required to follow the ceremonial law except for those four instances that were given to them. And in this, the whole world, Jew and Gentile, is shown the reality of the ceremonial law being abrogated and fading away to be totally destroyed with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Back to the commentary. All the churches there would have been concerned in that decree, and therefore it was requisite they should all have it well attested. Though Paul had for a particular reason circumcised Timothy, yet he would not have that drawn into a precedent. And therefore he delivered the decrees to the churches to be religiously observed, for they must abide by the rule and not be drawn from it by this particular example of Timothy's circumcision. So what happens next? Well, the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. The churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. What's the result of them visiting the churches? The result of the wisdom to have Timothy circumcised and brought onto his team as one to assist in the ministry. The result of delivering the Jerusalem Council decree. The result of the presence of this team and the wisdom of their ministry. What is the result? The churches, two things, were strengthened in the faith and the churches and the believers daily increased in number. First, they were strengthened in the faith. This must always occur first if we are to see growth in new believers and in new churches. If we are to have healthy, growing churches, we must have holy, righteous churches. Great growth, growth in grace precedes growth in number. Looking to Christ more frequently and less and less to self. Growing up in the love of Christ and being cured of our self-love. And in this situation, most especially these churches were strengthened against, for them, what was the most important destabilizing soul-threatening ideas of that era, the Judaizer heresy that was described as a soul-threatening heresy. So we need to be strengthened in the faith as well. There are bad ideas present in the church today as well that we need to be protected from through the study of God's Word and the ongoing learning of Scripture we need to spot 
the bad ideas that are thrown at us and be strengthened by the Scriptures. Note that those would not have been strengthened in the faith had they not been present and attentive upon the preaching and the teaching provided to them by Paul's team. Commentary says they were confirmed particularly in their opinion against the imposing of the ceremonial law upon the Gentiles. The great assurance and heat wherewith the Judaizing teachers pressed the necessity of circumcision and the plausible arguments they produced for it had shocked them so they began to waver concerning it. But when they saw the testimony, not only of the apostles and elders, but of the Holy Ghost in them against it, they were established and did no longer waver about it. Do you have wavering in your soul over Christian doctrines that you've been taught? If so, you need to be strengthened. You need to be brought to that solid place where you are not being tossed around like waves by the wind. Commentary says, note, testimonies to truth, though they may not prevail to convince those that oppose it, may be of very good use to establish those that are in doubt concerning it and to fix them. Nay, the design of this decree being to set aside the ceremonial law and the carnal ordinances of that, they were by it established in the Christian faith in general and were the more firmly assured that it was of God because it set up a spiritual way of serving God as more suited to the nature both of God and man. And besides that spirit of tenderness and condescension which appeared in these letters plainly showed that the apostles and elders were herein under the guidance of Him who is love itself. So the love of Christ compelled them. They acted wisely. And the believers who had been tossed about by these bad ideas are strengthened. And in that strengthening, they grow in Christ. They experience a greater fruitfulness in their lives. Their love for one another and for those outside the church. The barrier of this untruth removed in their conversations with both unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles. It would have been a hindrance to the gospel now removed and them strengthened in it. So the churches and the believers daily increased in number. Love of Christ causes love for one another and love for the lost. When we are strengthened in the faith, each of us and love one to another increases. And love for the lost and Christ and His kingdom increases. We see increase in number. The commentary says the imposing of the yoke of the ceremonial law upon their converts was enough to frighten people from them. If they had been disposed to turn Jews, they could have done that long since before the apostles came among them. But if they find there's no danger of their being so enslaved, They're ready to embrace Christianity and join themselves to the church. And thus the church increased in numbers daily. Not a day passed, but some or others gave up their names to Christ. Who would not love to dwell in the midst of a movement of God like that? Not a day passed, but some or other gave up their names to Christ. And it is a joy to those who heartily wish well, 
to the honor of Christ and the welfare of the church and the souls of men to see such an increase. I hope that you will see the connection between Paul and Timothy and Silas and their love of Christ that compelled them and the absence of hypocrisy in their lives whereby they demonstrated pure and sincere and comprehensive devotion to Christ and His name and His kingdom. That and the strengthening of the church and the growth of the church. May we each examine ourselves, brothers and sisters, in regard to this question of self-love. That is your homework. As a result of today's sermon, we all have it. We're all infested with it. Every one of us. It is a problem for each and every human being that has ever been brought onto this earth. And going on, you have your own particular way of displaying it. You also have your own particular way of rationalizing it. You also have your own particular way of being blinded to your own selfishness. And this is true for you. This is true for, true for me. And we need one another and we need the work of God's Spirit and God's Word in us and through us that we would indeed be experiencing the cure to this self-love every single day. Not through academic knowledge, but through the inner working of the Holy Spirit of God, whereby He brings into our hearts and souls the experience of love for Christ. Love for Christ. Love for Christ. Appreciation for Him. Worship of Him. Contemplation of Him. Mindfulness of who He is. And the purpose of our lives being linked in with Him. This is the cure for our selfishness. May God grant this to us more and more each and every day of our lives. Amen. Let us pray. <coughs> Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, may we also, according to Your grace and Your power, the power of the resurrection of Christ that works in us by Your Spirit, be those who can also say with sincerity and with lives that demonstrate it, the love of Christ controls us, compels us, restrains us, that our heart's constant and growing motive is for thy name, Lord Jesus, and for thy glory. And to this end, that all of our lives would be devoted. In Jesus' name, amen.